Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at twomississippimuseums.com slash spirits. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, learn more about how donating your body to science could help train the next generation of Mississippi doctors. Then, a new report says a downturn in funding for public health efforts could be putting Mississippians and others at risk. And in this week's book club, Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War, Mississippi. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians who donated their remains to scientific research and education are being honored at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. University leaders, faculty, family, and friends attended a ceremony of Thanksgiving yesterday in memory of anatomical donors. Dr. Alan Sinning is Anatomical Sciences Chair at UMMC. He says donating bodies to the medical school is an important tradition. Dr. Sinning talks with MPB's Jasmine Ellis. People donate their bodies uh, to the medical center for to allow the students to study them and to and to learn about the anatomy or how they're put together. Why are these donations important? Because it's the only opportunity that the students will get to actually uh, see the human body uh, and learn from it before they get into the practice of medicine. What ways are these students using these donations for in the classroom? All the students that were here have a complete dissection of the human body where they they take it apart, they learn the different parts, they learn the organization, where they are, what's in relation to, to those different parts. How does someone become an anatomical donor in Mississippi? We have an authorization form that they can get either off the Medical Center website or they can call our office uh, and we can send them out to them. We do no advertising for this program, though. How many anatomical donations are made in Mississippi each year? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, this year on our list, we read off about 150 names. Uh, we probably had over 200 calls, of which some of the final acceptance into our program is at the time of death, so there are circumstances where we can't take everybody that is signed up. But our waiting list is approximately 8,000 people right now and growing every day. So what happens to the bodies or the remains after the students are done with their research the, in class? All of our donors, in the end, are cremated, and they're either returned to the family if they've requested them, or they're buried here at the university cemetery. What would you say to a family who is considering donating their loved one's body to science, to the University of Mississippi Medical Center, but are a little bit apprehensive about it. Well, I, I think the greatest gift that a person can give is to be able to teach someone something. And our students take these, and the information they learn is used completely for the rest of their lives in their medical or dental practice or in, in their physical therapy programs. And so the, the ability to actually look at the human body is is probably the biggest reward that any of these students can get, and they'll remember it forever. 
Dr. Alan Sinning of UMMC. Mary Woodward is attending the ceremony in honor of her late father, Jack Woodward. She also spoke with our Jasmine Ellis. My father donated his body. Um, he was worked for many years at Millsaps College as a helping kids get through Millsaps and started a foundation to help students that wanted to go places like Millsaps to get to college and you know, make a better Mississippi, and I think he saw this as a way that he could continue in death to help continue education in Mississippi, which was his passion. And what was your father's name? Jack, Jack Woodward. And when did he pass away? He died last February, February of 2000, whatever last year, February of 2018. And if I may ask, how did he pass away? He was 89, and he just had a lot of things going on. And I think if people think about it, if they have health issues throughout their life, then they're prim- they are prime candidates to donate their body because so much can be learned from them. And the University Medical Center made it such an easy process, and we know that it's one of the premier institutions in the country in terms of research, and we really appreciate everything they did to make it so easy for us and the students here are wonderful dedicated doctors and it shows a bright future for health care in Mississippi a place like this and I know my dad would want to be a part of that and he after listening to the students today it makes us know that he was a an incredible part to live on for generations and helping create a better Mississippi. And how do you feel knowing that your father's donation is helping students how does that feel? as a a daughter it really it chokes you up when you think about it and listening to all the students um but my that was the way my dad was and our family has tried to emulate him in our lives of service and just to be kind to people as well and to know that no you may never know someone but you can affect their lives very deeply so Do you have any advice for family members who may be considering donating a loved one's body to science but might be a bit apprehensive about it? I think if they came to this ceremony, they'd see how much their loved one will affect so many people on so many levels. And it may be difficult to think, well, we're not going to have a funeral where we sit and we have closure, but eventually the remains are returned, And but... What is given back to the community and to the family and to these students is immeasurable. And you mentioned we are at the memorial uh, ceremony just celebrating the lives of those whose bodies were donated to science. How important was this ceremony for you today? To me, it was a sense of um, honoring Dad, but all those, and to support the wonderful work the Med Center is doing. We didn't have, we haven't. Like I said, we did. We had a memorial service when he died at the church, but when there's no body there, there's kind of a, it still feels open-ended. So this, to me, gave a sense of closure as well. But um, I think the valuable gift that anyone can give, giving your body, you become a teacher, as the students said. It, it's just an amazing concept, an amazing gift that will continue on for generations to come. People interested in the anatomical donorship program can contact the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Coming up, a new report says a downturn in funding for public health efforts could be putting Mississippians and others at risk. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are your pet peeves about other drivers? Tell us on the next autocorrect, and maybe some of those problem drivers will finally get the message. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, will share some of her pet peeves about car owners. Email us, auto at mpbonline.org, or call the show today at 10 a.m. Autocorrect can be heard on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Americans aren't getting any healthier with less funding for public health in the U.S. A new report from the Trust for America's Health shows chronic underfunding of public health programs is putting lives at risk. John Auerbach is the trust president and CEO. He talks with us about the findings of this year's report, starting with the benefits of robust public health efforts. Well, a wide variety of different protections. Uh, We're seeing a measles outbreak now, for example, that relates to uh, not doing sufficient numbers of vaccinations. Public health is leading the charge in terms of vaccinations for uh, everything from uh, measles to flu to the kind of vaccinations that older adults need. Um, In addition to that, um, we're focused on the increasing number of weather-related emergencies from tornadoes to hurricanes to wildfires and the steps that are necessary to protect the public there. And maybe a final example is chronic diseases. Uh, We know that we're continuing to see increases in the obesity levels, and that's resulting in more and more diabetes, heart disease, and other preventable diseases. All of these kinds of risks to the public can be reduced if there is a robust and strong public health system in place. And unfortunately, we're moving in the wrong direction. How has public health funding been trending in recent years? Well, unfortunately, it's been trending downward. Um, At the national level, the CDC is the most important source of public health funding. And over the last decade, we've seen a 10% reduction in funding when we uh, calculate uh, the cost of living increases. Uh, And more than 50% of that funding goes out to states like Mississippi and to local areas within the states as well. So when the federal government funding is cut, uh, it's felt very strongly at the state and local level. John, can you um, expand on specifics of, of the real-world impact, how less funding is most likely to impact I'll give the example uh, associated with uh, childhood obesity levels. We have really seen the negative consequences of those over uh, the last uh, 20 years. Um, When the Centers for Disease Control has funding to work on that issue, it can give major grants to uh, states to um, focus on uh, making healthier food options available available to people. working to increase farmers' markets, uh, working to increase opportunities for exercise, safe routes to schools where kids can ride their bikes or walk to school. Um, So a a number of different activities that we know work, um, unfortunately, aren't getting funded at the state level. 
Doesn't that end uh, up costing more in the long run, though, because those are preventative measures? It ends up costing more in the long run and also in the short run. We have seen the consequences in just uh, a few years of a, a rapid increase in the diabetes levels of adults, more than a third of the adult population. And, and we never used to see type 2 diabetes among children and adolescents, but we're seeing that now. And once you have either a diagnosis of prediabetes or diabetes, the costs are um, quite significant. In Mississippi, of course, diabetes, obesity, heart disease are all, well, close to leading the nation, if not leading the nation. What other impacts does less funding have on Mississippi, given those high numbers uh, of serious issues? Um, Well, uh, among the other issues that we're seeing that are newer ones in the last decade are, are certainly the increase in terms of substance abuse, alcohol-related deaths, and suicides. Those have been trending upwards uh, for the last decade. Um, We refer to those as deaths of despair, but fortunately we're now understanding more and more of what we can do to prevent those deaths if we have the resources. There too, though, we're falling short on the prevention side. We're doing better on the treatment side, but we're we're, we're falling short on the prevention side. I'll give one other example that we've seen in the last decade. We've seen a rapid um, uh, increase in the rates of adolescents that are vaping, that are using tobacco-related products, that are um, e-cigarettes and the like. Um, and those are um, resulting in a, a, another generation of addiction to uh, nicotine, and, and we know the consequences of that. We need public health to be able to do more on preventing vaping um, addiction and um, making sure that our children and our adolescents are as healthy as they can be. You mentioned measles, and I just want to touch on that for a moment. Mississippi is actually very good, leads the nation in terms of children who are vaccinated against diseases. But in the rest of the country, does less funding mean that there's less money to vaccinate its population? It does. There, when populations, um, when people are not uh, insured, they're less likely to be vaccinated. So if they don't have health insurance, it's often the public health system that will provide their vaccination for free. Um, and so uh, less funding for that results in fewer vaccinations. But it, it also, um, less funding also results in fewer public information campaigns. Uh, and those campaigns are important because there are myths that begin to spread about vaccinations that are um, are inaccurate. John Auerbach is president and CEO of the Trust for America's Health. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Coming up, we'll t- take a look behind the rifle, women soldiers in Civil War Mississippi. That's in this week's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Whether you're a thrifty shopper or someone who likes to buy the whole store, Change is the program that will allow your purchases to show your support for the quality content on MPB Radio. This easy and no-hassle program rounds up your credit or debit card purchases to the nearest dollar and sends us the difference. You support MPB and get something nice for yourself. To sign up for Change, visit our website, mpbonline.org, and click support. 
Palette to Palette is back with Chef Robert St. John and artist Wyatt Waters. Join us this week on Palette to Palette. We start at Meridian, where we go to the Max Museum. We have bluegrass all the way in to Hattiesburg, where we eat at the Purple Parrot. I've heard of that place before. It's a pretty good place. I've been there. Vastai Jackson rocks us out at the end of the day. The Grand Tour, join us. That's Palette to Palette. Thursday at 7.30 on MPB Television. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than two and a half million men fought in the Civil War, and so did some women disguised as male soldiers. Why were they there, and how did they pull it off? Shelby Harrell is the author of Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War, Mississippi. My first question, how many women soldiers were there? We don't know, and we never will, because they had to fight disguised as men. Women weren't allowed to serve in the military 150 years ago. It was even illegal and socially unacceptable just for them to wear pants. So they had to be sneaky about it in order to enlist and serve. We know about the ones who were caught or their story came to light after the war. So estimates range from the hundreds to the thousands. There weren't that many of them, especially when you consider the fact that over two million men fought in the Civil War. Their number was insignificant. They did not affect the outcome of any battles, but they're still significant because they were there. They weren't supposed to be, so they gave their lives for the same causes the men did. Do you have any information why they enlisted, why they put themselves in that kind of danger of being discovered, for one, and, of course, putting their lives on the line? There were multiple reasons, and a major reason that they gave was to avoid being separated from loved ones who had gone off to war. In some cases, a husband or a brother was all the family these women had, and so they just did not want to be left home alone, didn't want to be by themselves. And so they donned men's clothing and followed these male loved ones to war was one of the major reasons. An economic reason was another. Women did not have many job opportunities, at least decent jobs, for decent pay. And so in order to be financially independent, they had to disguise themselves as men to take advantage of jobs denied them because of their gender. And so in some cases, as soon as they enlisted, they were making three and four times the money that they were in their traditional feminine roles. So that was another reason. Just like the men, these women were adventurous. They were patriotic. In some cases, the reasons that they enlisted were no different than their male counterparts. What was the penalty if they were caught? In most cases, they were dismissed and discharged right there on the spot. Some of them were actually sent to prison, still wearing their uniforms, because Nobody knew how to deal with them. There was nothing in the military regulations directing the military officials on how to deal with a woman who was caught in a regiment. So they assumed they were spies or prostitutes or they were crazy or 
something like that. They just couldn't understand that a woman would leave her domestic sphere in the Victorian time and cross over into a world that was completely closed to them and try to serve in the military. So they didn't know how to deal with them. So they just sometimes ended up sending them to prison. They would serve a few weeks and ultimately they would let them go and they would just turn around and re-enlist in another regiment. In your research, did you find any cases where fellow soldiers realized that who they were serving next to was a woman, not a man, but didn't say anything? Yes. Matter of fact, I talk about one, and I believe he's in the 4th Michigan, and wrote a letter home about multiple women that he had been serving with and actually praised them for their skills that they had, you know, as soldiers. He said they were competent soldiers. In some cases, they didn't really say anything, but the officers were ones that if you're a woman soldier, you wanted to avoid an officer because it was an embarrassment to the officers that they were caught, you know, sneaking into their regiment. And then you also saw some cases where a soldier was actually court-martialed. So officers especially did not want to be associated with a woman that was caught in their regiment. Does your book cover women serving in the Confederate Army and the Union Army? Yes, in both cases. I have a chapter on women soldiers from Mississippi, and then I have sprinkled throughout women from various other states who came to Mississippi to serve in the battles fought in this state. And then, of course, I have some introductory chapters where I talk about women who were killed or wounded in other battles and then were serving as prisoners of war in prison camps like Andersonville and so forth. So it's not just Mississippi-centric, I do branch out and discuss other topics. That was my next question about Andersonville or other prison camps. Were they held alongside of the men? Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about them. We're lucky just to have a brief mention in a diary or letter example that I I talk about in my book is Florina Budwin, which was more than likely not her, her correct name because these women would give false information when they were discovered just because of the shame and ostracism involved. So we don't even know for sure what regiment she was in, lots of conflicting information, but she was brought to Andersonville and then transferred to Florence, where ultimately she was discovered in Florence after falling ill and died there and was buried there in Florence National Cemetery. And and there are accounts of male soldiers saying that they witnessed her at Andersonville. So again, we just, we don't know a lot of information beyond that. The name of the book is Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War, Mississippi. We've been speaking with its author, Shelby Harrell. Thank you so much, Shelby. Thank you for having me. And Shelby Harrell will be at Lemuria Bookstore to sign and read from her book on Saturday, May 4th at 2 p.m. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Auto Correct. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores, or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
of your pet peeves about other drivers. Tell us on the next autocorrect, and maybe some of those problem drivers will finally get the message. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, will share some of her pet peeves about car owners. Email us, auto at mpbonline.org, or call the show today at 10 a.m. Autocorrect can be heard on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. I'm Jeremy Hobson. With the field of Democrats hoping to become president growing, is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders being underestimated by the Democratic establishment? Senator Sanders has a serious chance of being the Democratic nominee, and that's not something I think many of them were really thinking about. Taking Bernie Sanders seriously, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. 